You're listening to Time in the Word. This major section begins with the rhetorical question, why then was the law given? In verse 19 through 25, Paul explained the purpose of God giving the law to Moses and to Israel. In the remaining verses of chapter 3, Paul explains the believer's position under faith. He tells us that when a person was under the works of the law, he soon found himself to be under the curse and under sin. Now Paul wanted to show the favorable position of the sinner who has been justified by faith in Christ. Let's listen as Dr. Gonzalez concludes his exposition of Galatians chapter 3, verses 19 through 29. Galatians chapter 3, I'll read verse 19 and forward. Why then was the law given? It was added for the sake of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise was made would come. The law was put into effect through angels by means of a mediator. Now a mediator is not just one for one person alone, but God is one. Is the law therefore contrary to God's promises? Absolutely not. For if the law had been granted with the ability to give life, then righteousness would certainly be on the basis of the law. But the scripture imprisoned every, everything under sin's power so that the promise might be given on the basis of faith in Jesus Christ to those who believe. Before this faith came, we were confined under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith was revealed. The law then was our guardian until Christ so that we could be justified by faith. But since that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian for through faith you are all sons of God in Christ Jesus. For those of you who were baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ. There is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, since you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham seed, heirs according to the promise. We saw that the first part of this section we're looking at began with a rhetorical question, why then was the law given? And Paul takes time to answer that question. We left off in verse 20, so we're going to start in verse 21. Again, again, Paul raised a rhetorical question in verse 21. And the question goes this way, is the law therefore contrary to God's promises? Since justification by legalistic works is the main obstacle to the reception of justification by faith, it would certainly appear that the law was actually an opponent to God's promises, wouldn't it? The righteousness of the law, which is produced by man, is often the main deterrent to the righteousness of God imputed through faith in Christ Jesus. Paul says in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 9, And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ, a righteousness from God based on faith. The reason that there seems to be an opposition between the law and faith is because of man's misunderstanding and man's misuse of the divine intent behind the law. Since God gave both the promise to Abraham and the law to Moses, by definition, the two covenants must complement each other. Why do I say that? Because we know that God never does what? Contradict himself. He would not give us something that is in direct opposition to something else that 
he gives us. And that is precisely why Paul immediately reacts in that verse after he asks the rhetorical question, and he says, absolutely not. The law was not given to replace. The law was not given to replenish the promise. Rather, it was supposed to prepare men to receive the promise. And for the sake of, a, of argument, Paul proposes a hypothesis, which is actually contrary to fact, but he still proposes a hypothesis. And this is the proposed hypothesis. Look at the second part of verse 21. For if the law had been granted with the ability to give life, then righteousness would certainly be on the basis of the law. It's just a hypothetical. Why? Because it can't. But let's say it could. Theoretically, then, salvation could have come through obedience to the law, if, if his hypothesis is correct. If the law had been given the ability to give life, and one could keep the law, then one could receive life by obedience or adherence to the law. If men would have had the ability and the willingness to keep it. But that's where the problem lies, doesn't it? Here's the issue. The law tells men what to do, but it can never supply the power to do it. The moral impotence of men dominated by sin is what makes legalism an impossible foundation or means for salvation. Why? Because the law, though it tells us what we can do, it gives us no power to actually keep it. Men who were and are dead in trespasses and sins needed and need to be made alive by God because they could not and they cannot spiritually resurrect themselves. Turn for a moment, keep your place here, turn for a moment to Ephesians chapter 2, and let me read verses 1 through 5. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Who? The entire human race, with the exception of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. All were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously lived according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too, all previously, notice the we. He includes himself. And he does that quite a bit in, in the Galatians passage. He says, we too, all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. And we were by nature children under wrath, as the others were also. But God. Why but God? Well, because I was dead in my trespasses and sins. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ. Even though we were dead in our trespasses, you are saved by grace. So even if you could, you wouldn't. Because in reality, again, it's, it's a proposed hypothesis which is actually contrary to fact. Since you were dead in trespasses and sins, since you could do nothing to resurrect yourself from the dead, God. Elsewhere, Paul wrote, Romans 8, 3, and 4, he says, What the law could not do since it was weakened by the flesh, God did. He condemned sin 
in the flesh by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as a sin offering in order that the law's requirement would be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the spirit. Now the law did contain promises for the enjoyment of life on earth. God said in Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 1, He said, Carefully follow every command I am giving you today so that you may live and increase and may enter and take possession of the land the Lord swore to your fathers. That verse itself tells us that to experience the material blessings of God within the promised land, Israel had to obey the law. Their subsequent rebellion brought defeat and dispersion. However, their unconditional covenant, and we always have to keep this in mind, unconditional covenant relationship was sustained by the faithfulness of God in the midst of their sin. Now look at verse 22. But the scripture, and let me just stop there so we say something about that word scripture. What does he mean by scripture? Well, the law is scripture. And as such, it is God breathed, and as Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 3.16, it is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness. In its divine purpose, look at that first part of, of verse 22, but the scripture imprisoned everything under sin's power. Paul is telling us that in its divine purpose, it has imprisoned Everything under sin's power that has imprisoned means to shut up together on all sides. Scripture, the law, imprisoned who? All people. There are no exceptions. Not one. The law never intended to do what the Judaizers were claiming the law had been given for. Rather, the law, Scripture, imprisoned all of us. They are all equally trapped within the dominion of sin. So Paul clearly teaches us that the law was given to create in each of us an awareness that we were completely enveloped in sin with no ability to rescue ourselves from our spiritual dilemma. And the scripture proves that both Jews and Gentiles are all under sin. So one would think that in that state or in that condition, men must stop making excuses for their sin and start admitting their guilt before God. That is the purpose of the law. The problem is the unregenerate man is imprisoned and is a slave to that cruel taskmaster. And he stands in real need of pardon, of forgiveness, of redemption. In Romans 11.32, listen to what Paul observed. He says, For God has imprisoned all in disobedience, so that he may have mercy. You see the purpose? He yearns to demonstrate his mercy. But in order to be able to do that, he uses the law to bring man to that point where he then can exercise or display or manifest that mercy. So the purpose for the conclusion is seen in the word that. He says that the promise. So again, if we ask the question in order to answer the question using using what he's giving us in this verse. What was the purpose of Scripture imprisoning all? Well, so that the promise might be given on the basis of faith in Jesus Christ to those who believe. When sinners 
stop trying to save themselves, which is what ultimately the Judaizers would have been advocating and what all religions of the world are espousing. When we, or when sinners, stop saving, trying to save themselves and start trusting in Christ to save them, then the law has fulfilled the, its purpose in their lives. That was the purpose of the law, to bring them to a place where they can trust in Christ. When they come to that point, then the law has fulfilled its purpose in that person's life. What the law wasn't able to give because of the impotence of man, God is able to give because of the power of the crucified and the resurrected Christ. And notice that the promise is given to those who believe. So we know that all the unregenerate are under the curse, chapter 3, verse 10. We know that they all regenerate are under sin, chapter 3, verse 22. And now we know, as we look at verse 23, that that second phrase, all are confined under the law. Paul continues to insist this point. All people, regardless of whether they had personal contact with the Mosaic law or not, all people are confined under the law. So the isolated non-believer has rejected the revelation of God in nature, and therefore he has demonstrated his slavery to the law. That's what Paul teaches us in, in Romans chapter 1. So it's interesting because Paul, you know, a, a former Pharisee, a legalistic Jew, as a legalistic Jew, Paul then inserts himself into this argument. Notice the frequent usage of the words we and our in their unsaved lives. Both the Galatians and Paul, because he injects himself now into this, into this argument, were confined under the law. The law was in essence like a jailer watching every act of moral disobedience. And notice, first part of verse 23, that the state of protective custody occurred before this faith came. The definite article, the, or the, appears before the noun, thus it literally reads, before the faith came. So, looking at it from two separate angles, historically, this phrase refers to the coming of the seed, the Lord Jesus Christ, and his subsequent redemptive death and resurrection. So the basic doctrines of fundamental Christianity are entitled the faith. And we see that to be true in Scripture, for example, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, and Jude, verse 3. So the penal function of the law ended with the introduction of the new age of grace and faith. So from a historical standpoint, we understand that to be the faith. From a personal dimension, the phrase the faith points back to that faith exercised by the believing sinner that is mentioned in verse 22. So it is the subjective appropriation of the objective fact that Jesus Christ came to deliver from the curse of the law and to impart the promise of righteousness by faith. And then he says in verse 23, in their sinful position, they were also, notice what he says, imprisoned until the coming faith was revealed. This legal confinement of which he speaks is not rendered to give uh, the, the, the moral prisoners a sense of fulfillment or satisfaction. Rather, it promoted an expectation of release, and this is the point that he's making, from one other than himself, is the point Paul is making. 
In ancient cultures, a guardian was usually a slave who was charged or responsible for the education and the protection of a child who had not yet reached age of adulthood. Literally, the word means, that word guardian means child guide or child leader or conductor. And in some cases, the guardian, and we're looking at at verse uh, 24, where he says the law then was our guardian unto Christ. The, often the guardian was a teacher's assistant, and he also watched over the behavior of the child in the home. Now, through this ana- analogy, the law became a guardian, is what Paul is teaching us here. Now, notice, for Paul and others, and again, note the use of the word we and our, but for Paul and others, the law taught them about themselves, about the wrongness of their behavior, about their relationship to others, and about their position before God. So the law performed two tasks. First, it brought men to Christ. Look at verse 24, the first part. He says, therefore, the law was our tutor for what purpose? To bring us to Christ. The law, when properly understood, when properly used, does not lead a person to itself, nor does it inform a person that he is perfect. Rather, it leads the person to the person and redemptive work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And second, so that we could be justified by faith. The law cannot provide such justification because it does not operate under the principle of faith. The law, recognizing its moral limitations, nevertheless serves as the divine human instrument to create need for justification. So Paul tells us in verse 25 that when a person comes to faith in Christ, he is what? No longer under a guardian. The dispensational responsibility of the law ended on the cross. And its personal role as guardian terminates when a believing sinner becomes a spiritual son of God. So Paul clearly teaches us here that in Christ, the believer is not under the law, but under grace. Romans 6.14. So spiritual identification with Christ has set a justified sinner free from its positions under the law and under sin. So the law, Paul tells us, as a guardian, performed a needed role, a needed function before justification. It was intended to do something. It was intended to bring a person to that point where the person could be justified. But it has no authority over the regenerated child of God. I'll say this and and I'll kind of explain what I mean so I'm not misunderstood. The redeemed sinner does not have to obey the law to maintain his justified position or even to achieve sanctification. Let me add a, a corrective to that so it's not misunderstood. Of course, at all times, he is not According to 1 Corinthians 9.21, he is not without God's law, but under the law of Christ. In other words, we are not required to obey the law in order to, one, be justified. That's what he's been arguing all along. Two, to remain justified. Or three, to even even, uh, uh, achieve that sanctification. Nonetheless, we are in a respect under the law of Christ. And what we say is, a Christian must never be morally lawless. Rather, he should always be submissive to the righteous, eternal law of God, which transcends 
all ages in which reflects the holy character of God. So when a person was under the works of the law, he soon found himself under the curse and under sin. Now Paul wants to show or wanted to show the favorable position of the sinner who was justified by faith in Christ. Look at verse 26 for a moment. The first privilege of that is being sons of God. For through faith, you are all sons of God in Christ Jesus. Now, notice that the verse, verse reads sons rather than children. These terms are sometimes uh, used interchangeably by many, but they do have distinctive meanings on their own. A believing sinner, we learned this from John chapter 1, verse 12, a believing sinner becomes a child of God through regeneration, whereas a regenerated sinner becomes a son of God by the act of spiritual adoption. Galatians chapter 4 and verse 5, to redeem those under the law so that they might receive adoption as sons. When we are saved, we at the same time become children of God and sons of God. A child is a child because he simply has a nature of his parent within him, but he is still immature and must grow up into adulthood. In real life, a child does not have mature responsibilities, doesn't have the privileges of sonship until he has reached, in many cultures, a predetermined age. In spiritual experience, a person becomes a child and a son in the same instant. A regenerated child is immediately put into the position of sonship, whereby he enjoys all the privileges and all the responsibilities of sonship. So adoption, in the biblical sense, means to put into the position of son or of sons. And this act was determined by God, according to Ephesians 1.5, in eternity past. And finalized, according to uh, chapter 4 and verse 6 in Romans 8.15, by the operation of the Holy Spirit at the point of conversion. So first we become sons of God. A second um, benefit, verse 27, For those of you who were baptized into Christ... All genuine believers have been baptized into Christ. We have become sons of God and we have been baptized into Christ. Through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, we all have been spiritually placed in Christ with the result of us having a new position in Him. You recall Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and see the new has Come. We have been accepted in the beloved, says Paul in, in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 6. Now the question is, what kind of baptism is described in this verse? Doubtless refers to the baptism, again, of the Holy Spirit. All believers, according to Paul, possess one Lord, one faith, one baptism. We know that it is not true that all believers have experienced water baptism. And for those who have, that they have experienced it in the same way or have it done in the same way. So clearly this is a reference to baptism in the Holy Spirit. Notice we're also, verse 27, we are clothed with Christ. Verse 27 grammatically reads, As many as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. As clothing, Christ is put around the believer. Whereas in spiritual baptism, the believer is placed into Christ. You see the difference. At conversion, the sinner puts off his filthy rags of self-righteousness and puts on the righteousness of, of God, even of Christ himself. Notice verse 28, another benefit. There is no Jew or Greek. 
slave or free, male or female, since you are all one in Christ Jesus. Oneness in Christ. All believers are one in Christ Jesus, according to this verse. This is a, a positional oneness of equality. Notice that in Him, in Christ, there is no spiritual superiority or inferiority. All the mundane divisions are eliminated. Look, for example, there is no racial division anymore, neither Jew nor Greek. There is no social division anymore, slave or free. There is no gender division anymore, male nor female. The man, male, the man is no more accepted in Christ than the woman, nor is the Jew any more justified than the Gentile, or share the same standing before God. That's a truth that we often have to remind ourselves, because even in the church, there is this tendency to allow some of our sinful nature to creep up and show some sense of bias or discrimination or something of the sort. We may look at individual of other races or colors differently than we might look at ourselves. They're not like us. And it's important to constantly remind ourselves that all these mundane divisions have been taken down. There is no difference between anybody before the Lord. So the removal of classification refers, and this is important too, because if you don't make this qualification, then, then you start allowing these verses to make arguments that they're not making. And by that I simply mean this. The removal of classifications refers only to the spiritual positions. People do not lose their distinctiveness within the functional order of society or, or the church. A woman is a woman both before and after conversion, and so is a man. Within the oneness of the divine essence, there is an equality of the persons of the Godhead, but there nevertheless remains an order for the execution of the divine purpose of redemption. And why do I say that? Just to make this point. The Father is the head of Christ, and the Father sent the Son into the world. In the same sense, the man and the woman are one in Christ, but the headship of the man over the woman remains in order to carry out the divine purpose for the home and for the local church. So we must understand what the bringing down of those mundane divisions means and what they don't mean at the same time. Notice also that, verse 29, and if you belong to Christ, you are Abraham's seed. Another benefit is that we are Abraham's seed. And just one thought around, around that. The logic of this concluding verse is convincing. First, all believers belong to Christ. If you belong to Christ, he says. They have been baptized into him. They've been clothed with him and are in him. Second, since Christ is the seed of Abraham according to chapter 3, verse 16, then all who are in Christ are also Abraham's seed. And third, all believers along with Christ are heirs according to the promise. Now I say this in order for to us to not create some confusion. We understand that in the covenant made that God made with Abraham, there are certain physical and material promises that God has made. We in no way say that the covenant that God made with Abraham as it relates to his physical descendants, are set aside. But there's an aspect of the covenant of Abraham that in one respect doesn't apply at all to the unredeemed Jew. For we understand that any and all who die apart from Christ die in sin. 
whether Jew or Gentile, whether before or after the cross. So what Paul is teaching us here is that the spiritual promise pertains to those who have been justified by faith, while we don't set aside the promises that God has made to the nation of Israel and to going back to dealing with the nation of Israel in order to fulfill those promises. But justification, regardless of the dispensation, has always been by faith in Christ. So the promise that we now benefit from is the fact that because we have been justified just as Abraham was justified by faith, we have become his spiritual seed and have become the recipients of the spiritual promise that God made to Abraham in his covenant when he made that promise.